This episode of 80 Days is brought to you by HarryBaby.com, the company that makes the funniest Irish-themed t-shirts. HarryBaby shipped 71 countries last year, and to celebrate its 10th anniversary in 2017, HarryBaby aims to deliver to all 196 countries in the world by St. Patrick's Day 2018. You can help by ordering now from HarryBaby.com and use the promo code 80DAYS, that's 80DAYS, to get 10% off. I am willing to wager 20000 I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. Do you accept? I accept. I accept. Train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Welcome to 80 Days, an exploration podcast brought to you by three history and geography nerds in an internet power balloon. This podcast is dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements, and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly. I'm broadcasting from Hong Kong, and joining me today are... Mark Boyle in Surrey in the UK. And Joe Byrne in Bern, Switzerland. And in today's episode, we'll be talking about Newfoundland, a Canadian island in the North Atlantic. At over 100,000 square kilometers, or 40,000 square miles, Newfoundland is the world's 16th largest island, and Cape Spear, just south of the capital St. John's, is the easternmost point of North America, excluding Greenland. Newfoundland has long been a sparsely populated and harsh land with residents traditionally relying heavily on fishing to survive. The area has a strong Gaelic heritage with historical connections to Ireland and Britain. Modern day Newfoundland has a population of just under half a million and is the most populous part of the Canadian province of Newfoundland and Labrador. Mark, let's get into the early history of Newfoundland. My earliest history is my earliest, earliest history ever. 541 million years ago. Whew. Also, just to mention, um, I've just come back from Newfoundland. Uh, I was there and it looks very like home. Uh, it looks very familiar and it's a kind of a strange uh, feeling being there. And part of the reason for that is because it used to be England and Wales and Ireland and Newfoundland all stuck together. It's the same base rock geologically. Ah. So nothing's changed, really. Uh, I mean, a lot of stuff has changed, but <laughs> uh, the the soil has has not so much changed. Um, it's uh, yeah, it all used to be one part of a, a, a super island super team super geological team. super team millions of years nice. ago so that's part of the reason for the 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 strange similarity uh of the land type particularly in the eastern uh, avalon peninsula so newfoundland is kind of divided into lots of little peninsulas and and so on uh lots of coves and bays and and so on and it uh in the eastern half it is uh the avalonian peninsula which has always been traditionally the more populated side it's the the side that faces the ocean so anything in terms of you know business commerce fishing uh that's always going to be the more popular side um going towards the people um uh, one of the first archaeologically suggested groups to have settled there are known as the maritime archaic they were sub-Arctic sea mammal hunters, so whale hunters, seal hunters, etc. They lived in uh, longhouses and boat-topped settlements. The Labrador white chert sounds like uh, some weird endangered bird. It's actually stone. And the stone used in Labrador, which includes uh, flint, flint is a type of chert, has been found as far south as the US state of Maine, which suggests that it was used as a, as a currency. It was traded. Uh, it's very distinctive coming from, from this area. So... 
there was a, a whole culture, thousands and thousands of people in this area, all living in different settlements, trading, and Newfoundland was, was simply a part of this. Uh, an archaeologically significant site is Port Au Choix from 4,400 BC to about 3,300 BC. It had uh, grave sites. They found about, uh, I think, three separate grave sites with bone, stone, antler, and ivory. And in general, 56 graves from that about a thousand year stretch. A, a really interesting thing I found from this was that some of the bodies and some of the remains they found there brought them towards realizing that this really rare disease, histocytosis X, which is a, a type of lung disease, is actually genetically based. Some of the people here had this rare form of a, a, a genetic lung disorder and the, the archaeological digs there informed the modern day science oh, wow. to actually explain that it was a, a, a genetic disorder and not just something that, you know, uh, occurs due to uh, smoking or, or diet habits or, or what have you. And going back to prehistory. Yeah, and going back to prehistory. Cool. A lot of people lived here o- over the over the thousands of years and they, they mainly used Newfoundland in a kind of um, a seasonal way often. Um, there were some permanent settlements, but uh, in general... They used it seasonally as a, as a hunting ground for fishing, etc. 2,800 years ago, it was the, the Gross Water Paleo Eskimo. I've never heard of them, but that's what they're called. 1,300 uh, years ago, it was the Dorset Paleo Eskimos. They had permanent settlements. And you can say that you know for, for thousands of years then, people have been on Newfoundland. Today, there are uh, some other native populations, uh, including uh, Inuit populations. Uh, mainly in They're mainly in, in, in Labrador, which is administratively linked to Newfoundland, but isn't actually part of the island. It's on the mainland of Canada. And also uh, the Mi'kmaq. Yeah, I read a little bit about the Mi'kmaq in uh, researching this episode. Do you want to tell us a bit about them, Mark? Yeah, for sure. They were spread generally across uh, the Maritimes. They, they still are, in fact. I, I think their, their population is in the tens of thousands in, in Canada. There's debate around it about how long before uh, Europeans they arrived in, in Newfoundland themselves, but they were probably seasonally using it for hunting and fishing for, for hundreds of years. They traded extensively with the French, uh, who were among the first Europeans to, to really set up shop in Newfoundland. Um, and they were allied with them uh, in various conflicts with the British. Uh, so they, they fought with the French um, in many of their campaigns. When British dominance became more prevalent, they found themselves a little bit out in the cold, so to speak. They really relied on, on caribou hunting, and, and that was uh, devastating when the caribou stocks were, were reduced by European competition. In the 1900s and 1930s, the caribou were overhunted, the fur market collapsed, there was the Great Depression, and there was a lot of pushy Catholics who were telling them not to be uh, uh, following their own uh, cultural identity so much anymore. Uh, and, and, that... and we'll get to all of them. Oh, yeah. We will. Uh, <laughs> but it, it basically, it just, uh, it made their, very hard for them to, to restore their, uh, to keep their cultural identity. But I'm happy to report in, in modern day, they're very much held up as an example to uh, other uh, native traditions and native communities. Uh, they have a, a, a reservation, a settlement in, in Newfoundland. And whereas where they started, the unemployment was 90%. Uh, in the 1960s, literacy was only 30%. Uh, now they're one of the uh, fastest growing North American uh, First Nation bands. I think, I think, Joe, did you, you read something about that? Uh, yeah, so that there's been a little bit of controversy about the, um, the this Mi'kmaq band on Newfoundland because they've received, I think, 25,000 applications for membership since the Canadian government decided to recognize this band. And that's, that's a significant chunk of the entire Mi'kmaq nation throughout Canada overnight on Newfoundland, which is a place that the government didn't think had very much 
traditional Aboriginal practice left. So there's concern that people are rediscovering their heritage out of a desire for the financial benefits of being uh, a member of a recognised First Nations group. Um, but the the band itself is is arguing strongly that they are entitled to their heritage and entitled to the recognition of that heritage. And it seems that a huge proportion of Newfoundland's modern day population has some native heritage that has in some cases been hidden, but it's definitely very prevalent. Well, thanks for thanks for joining us today on our episode on the Mi'kmaq. <laughs> uh, this has been 80 days. Okay. Uh just, just what, one other thing, one other thing, and it's a little bit of trivia I did not know. The Micmac invented the ice hockey stick. Wow. Uh, the original uh, ice hockey stick was called the Micmac, uh, and it was a brand and everything. So that's their, that's their, I guess, revered contribution to Canadian culture. Uh, Canadian society has them to thank for modern day ice well, hockey. Well, you, you can't argue with that. Uh, the first Europeans to get to Newfoundland were... Vikings, right? Yes. Uh, Vikings turned up around 1000 AD, so about 1000 years ago. This is famously written about in uh, two sagas, two Norse sagas, the Saga of Greenland and the Saga of Eric the Red. Eric the Red seemed to, seems to have been a, an all-round bad egg slash badass, where uh, he... He was, I think, he was in trouble in in Norway, so he he shagged off to Iceland. He just and then killed he, a bunch of people, right? He just they they yeah. couldn't keep a keep a handle on him, pretty much. That, that's what I, I meant by trouble. I get the feeling that he was called Eric the Red because of you know not because of the color of his hair, but it yeah, that way. It's it's not his red; it's your red. Yes. He's just wearing it. <laughs> um, uh, but anyway, yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of uh, a lot of retrospective uh, uh, theorizing, I guess, about uh, how much truth there was in in Eric the Red's uh, account of him going to. Oh, to North America sorry, it was Eric's son, wasn't it, Leif Erikson? Well, Eric the Red got there, and then it was Leif Erikson apparently established the colony. I oh, believe, I see. In in Vineland or Vinland, I, I listened to um, to a podcast. I'm neglecting to credit it, Joe uh, Joe or Luke. Do you remember the name of that podcast? Yes, that was the uh, Born Yesterday podcast, which is, I, I think, now discontinued. Uh, but oh, bummer. Yeah, there's, there's a pretty good uh, episode on this Norse settlement on that podcast feed. It's still on iTunes. And this was considered a myth, basically, for for a long, long time. It's just something that the you know the Vikings were gloating about. But there's, there has been evidence found that they actually did make it here, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. This guy, uh, Helga Ingstad, which we... <laughs> We could do, I think we said before the show, we could do an entire podcast on this guy himself. Uh, yeah. Pretty interesting character. He was uh, born in Norway uh, and became a lawyer and then just suddenly decided one, to, one day to up sticks and go and live in uh, the Northwest Territories in Canada with a Indian okay. tribe, the uh, Caribou Eaters. It's a good Spent name. three years with them, wrote a book about it. Then he went to become governor, governor of Eric the Red's land in Greenland oh. uh, for a while, just because why not? And then after that, in around 1960, uh, him and his wife, who is also a historian, both just decided we're going to find out the truth of this um, this Viking settlement using clues from those epics that you uh, mentioned earlier, Mark. Sort of worked their way north, found themselves in Newfoundland and just kind of asked, I believe, a local fisherman or something, like, yeah. do you know of anything around here that looks like a, you know, Norse Have settlement? you seen any Viking houses around? <laughs> okay. Well, there's something over there. Like, yes. And that's essentially what he did. He just kind of went, well, there's some weird lumps in that field over there if you want to go check that out. And it turned out to be full of 
relics and it was proof of this uh, settlement, which had been debated by historians for a number of years, I believe, uh, decades, actually. And they, they found remnants of squashes there, like the, the vegetable, mm. which don't grow in Newfoundland. They grow further south in, in what's now the United States. Mm. So th- there's evidence that this is just one settlement, perhaps of many, many Viking settlements, or at least a trade arrangement with the North American continent. Um, so, also, just mm-hmm. to mention that uh, this, the name of the site is uh, uh, Lance au Meadow, uh, mm-hmm. and that, as well as the, the, the other sites I mentioned, they're all right on the coast. And what's significant about that is that over the last you know, hundreds and thousands of years, the, where the coast is has changed. So the likelihood is that there are many other archaeological sites that were never discovered that are now underwater as the uh, ice caps have gradually melted since the ice age and the uh, sea levels have risen. They've probably covered over several other coastal archaeological sites. We were just lucky enough to find these ones before the sea encroaches even further. That, that gives me a great opportunity for a segue, Mark, so I'm going to take it. Sweet. The the Ice Age is when the rugged shape of, of Newfoundland was probably carved out by glaciers. And apparently the reason why farming is so difficult on the island is because all of the rich nutri- nutrient-full soil uh, on, on top of the rock, as it's called locally, was pushed into the sea by the glacial flows. Um, and this is why you get this really, really rich bed of nutrients in what's called the Great Banks. And this is where the, the cod fishery that defined Newfoundland's history from about 1500 on got all of its nutrients from. So the, the, this rich soil filling the, the, the water and cod are, and other whitefish are, are bottom feeders. So they would feed on, this, uh, on these nutrients and they really teemed around the areas near Newfoundland. And that's what attracted the attention of Europeans, like, uh, I'm sure, the Vikings before them. So um, Mark Kurlansky has a book called Cod, A Biography of the Fish That Changed the World, which uh, I, I haven't read in its entirety. I've read one of his other books, and he writes very detailed histories. But there's a fascinating amount of information about the importance of cod to Europe, and it can be overlooked, I think. I, I, I overlooked it, despite eating cod a lot in my, in my life. You're known as a big cod fan, Joe. We all, we all know that. Uh, he posits that the Basques were probably fishing cod in and around Newfoundland uh, probably before 1500, but didn't widely advertise where they were getting their commodity from because cod was very valuable. The English would have been fishing for cod around Iceland and there was a decent fishery there. There's some in the coastal waters around England and Ireland, but nothing compared to the richness of the fishery in Newfoundland. And it's suspected that the Basques were just going out there in the in the summer harvesting all the cod they could, salting it, bringing it back to Europe, selling it and making a fortune and keeping their secrets to themselves as a kind of trade secret. They never really had an interest in setting up colonies and so on. It was just... Uh, and that's that's kind of continued even to, well, not necessarily all the way to modern day, but that, as you, as you mentioned, Joe, was a, a big influence on the economy and how Newfoundland was shaped as a, as a society, I suppose, is the abundance of cod around that area. Yeah, you could definitely say cod is the defining resource. It's the reason why this cold, isolated island 
has an interesting history. Yeah, I mean, pretty much all the settlements have been fishery-based around that Mm -hmm. area in the North Atlantic. Yeah, at least until the 20th century when things diversify a little bit. But up until then, completely cod-based. So just to briefly walk us through kind of the the various explorers that claimed this place, uh, one after the other. So in 1497, really early in the age of exploration, like Columbus has just crossed the Atlantic for the first time, what, five years previous? Five years previous, yeah. So this is when Europe is exploding westward into this frantic exploratory period. In 1497, an Italian called John Cabot in English. Uh, it's unclear what his Italian name was. He was a spice trader and he wanted to become an explorer and Spain and Portugal weren't hiring. So he went to England and offered his services to King Henry VII. He operated out of Bristol, a port on the west side of the UK, in what's called the West Country, and he got a charter from the king to go and sail through all of the seas, north and west and east and south, and find any new lands full of heathens that could be, you know, saved um, through the... Sounds like a very vague mission to be sent on. (laughs) I'm not sure these are direct quotes, Go sail in a random Uh, direction and find some heathens, Give me a big bag of heathens. Well, they, they didn't know there was a North America, to be honest. You know, he, he sails out of Bristol in his ship, the Matthew. He hugs the coast of Ireland and then sets off across the ocean. And there is debate over where exactly he landed. But on St. John's Day, June 24th in 1497, he lands somewhere on the east coast of Newfoundland. The kind of agreed upon site where they celebrated the 500th anniversary was Cape Bonavista, which is just yeah. north of what's now St. John's. But... The city of St. John's claims it was discovered on St. John's Day by John Cabot, hence the name. This was kind of the start of the English claim on Newfoundland. But the British were slow to take advantage of this new fishery because, as I said earlier, they did most of the fishing around Iceland and they did this out of ports on the North Sea, so on the east coast of England. And those were very poorly positioned to explore all the way across the ocean to Newfoundland. They would have been smaller boats and they were pointing the wrong direction. So when news of this this newfound land, um, very inventive name, <laughs> reaches the rest of Europe and its rich fisheries are described, fishermen from France, particularly Normandy and Brittany in the north of France, and Basque fishermen and various other Spanish fishermen and Portuguese all head across with um, many, many boats. Like in the 1510s and 1520s, you're talking about up to 100 vessels per year coming out of Brittany and Normandy every summer to do seasonal international fishing for cod around Newfoundland. And it took the British, or the English, I should say, quite a while to build up the capacity in their West Country ports of Bristol and Norfolk and Southampton and to build up an interest in this as a financial venture. And eventually they built these companies of merchants that would uh, send out ships. But up until the end of the 1500s, the French were still outnumbering English fishermen by two to one. Joe, actually, I actually have that up as far as 1678. In 1678, there were 20,000 men in the French fisheries and 300 vessels. Wow. And that ratio was still there about a uh, hundred years later even after uh, even after you have it's uh, okay, 1678 right. yeah despite it becoming an english colony like the english took their time consolidating their hold and a, an important difference and the reason they didn't actually have too much conflict between french and english fishers is they had quite different approaches the french were fans of wet curing cod which meant you kept it on the ship mm. and just used loads and loads of salt because france had access to salt from the mediterranean this was a, a viable 
a viable approach, where the English used a dry cure technique, which used less salt, and you would hang your fish on on racks on the shore and dry um, them with air. So this difference in in curing technique meant the English were more inclined to actually settle, or at least have temporary settlements on the land. Joe, um, a question. Um, mm-hmm. Did the English not realize that the Atlantic is also also filled with salt? I think it's temperature. So to require salt from the Mediterranean, you let it evaporate in pools. In in the UK, that isn't quite as efficient. As you know, the weather isn't always that hot. So it just wasn't an industry the English had. So they, they took a different approach. In 1575, they set up a base at Bonavista, which became known as the Old English Shore, kind of their their main points of operation during this period. And then in 1583, Humphrey Gilbert founds the first English colony. But when the, a French explorer, Jacques Cartier, is exploring the St. Lawrence River, which is just west of Newfoundland and leads into the interior of Canada and Quebec, he noticed still a thousand Basque ships floating in the bay. And it's thought that the Spanish word for cod, bacalao, may come from a native name for the fish that the, the Basques got from talking to the locals. That's interesting, actually, because um, I saw the use of the word bacalao a lot uh, in Newfoundland. Mm. And I was kind of surprised because it's, it's, it's probably the most advanced Spanish word I got before I totally quit learning Spanish. Uh, that and, and uh, uh, traffic lights, semaforos. Uh, for semaphore it's the Spanish word is semaphore Uh, but uh, yeah they had bacalao mentioned a lot of different places I think there's even a restaurant called bacalao in the middle of uh, in the middle of St. John's I imagine they probably sell cod well I mean they they like their bacalao and uh, so did Europe so we we get the development of a triangular trade with Europe where ships would come from Western Europe bringing fishermen and servants and uh, supplies for the, the summer months like butter and salted bread and so on. Newfoundland fishermen will then bring cod to Spain and France where there's a big demand because in Catholic France and Spain every Friday was a fish day. So there's a huge market for a tasty, uh, well-preserved fish you can keep through the winter. And then finally... <laughs> you, you sound like you're selling the fish, Joe. It's a tasty, uh, well-preserved uh, Mediterranean salt fish. So uh, flaky. Yeah. <laughs> All you the way like from Newfoundland. And the the third triangle, part of the triangle was the, the transport of wine and cork from Spain and France up to England. And then the triangle continues. So this was a this was huge business, but also huge risk. All right. Okay, a few more colonists. In 1610, John Guy sets up Cupid's Colony, um, which sounds... Lovely. Lovely. And that's down on the um, the Avalon Peninsula as well. And they were tasked by their charter to experiment with farming, cut spars and planks, make salt, potash and glass, collect samples of ore, and significantly to fish and trade in cured fish and train oil. Train oil was cod liver oil. So they were, they were meant to sort of probe whether a colony would work business-wise it didn't but the settlement persisted so some of the people who were planted stayed there and their descendants are still there a big character is is sir george calvert who was a secretary of state in england for a while and a privy councillor but his secret catholicism was exposed and so he um retired from public life and resigned all of his peerages but the king was a fan of him, so he gave him an Irish peerage and made him Lord Baltimore. He founds the province of Avalon, so a more official colony, and he hoped it would be a refuge for religious freedom, 
people who were fleeing the Reformation in, in England. Uh, he, and he invested a lot of money into fishing infrastructure, like places for drying fish and so on. But as a financial venture, it failed. He visited in, in 1627. There were 100 residents, but he thought the winter was brutal and um, him and his wife did not like it at all. So they give up on the province of Avalon and focus their attention on Maryland, which they also owned. And Baltimore, Maryland, is obviously named after him. Hmm. Uh, but this, these were some of the first permanent settlers in the whole of what is now Canada. We're still really early on in this age of exploration. And this is one of the first British maritime provinces. So they were really deciding, like, so do we set up shop in, in Baltimore, New York... Or Newfoundland, mm-hmm. all equally good, as far as we can tell from sitting here in London. Exactly. Uh, and they saw them as equal. Wow, that's, okay. that's nuts. The final colonization attempt in 1637, the entire island was granted by a charter to Sir David Kirk. So for the first time, the entire island was an administrative unit. He was a guy who had briefly conquered Quebec for the British, um, and then they gave it back in a treaty. Was but he, as was a, he a, a captain? Hmm? Was he a captain? I, I, I don't remember his rank. But um, he set up a capital at... Oh, sorry. (laughs) You're doing great, Joe. You're doing great. Yeah, Captain Kirk. Okay, got it. Got it. Um, So he set up the capital at Ferryland and he tried to eradicate the Baltimore colony. But he ended up dying in prison uh, in in London (laughs) when the second Lord Baltimore sued him for stealing his colony. Great times. Okay. Uh, yeah, and his wife Sarah becomes the most powerful planter in English shore and really starts building the foundations of a, a more permanent colony. All right, we're going to take a quick break here. Uh, we'll be back just after this. I used to buy the pills, the bone, and I used to buy the sail tar, and I used to buy the catches the fish and brings them home to Liza. Hip your partner, Sally T. Bow. Hip your partner, Sally Brown. Fogel twilling important harbor all around the circle. And on this week's episode, we were lucky enough to talk to Dr. Philip Hiscock, who is a professor of folklore at the Memorial University of Newfoundland in St. John's, and he was able to weigh in on the discussion with us. Uh, You'll hear his voice a couple of times throughout this podcast. So if you hear somebody who's distinctly not one of the regular three voices, then that'll be Dr. Hiscock, and we thank him for his contribution. Sometime in the late 1700s, Irish... Uh, workers were uh, brought in as as uh, essentially international cheap labor that could be hired on the on the wharves of uh, Southern Ireland and brought out to work for uh, several months or perhaps a year here in the fishing industry and they gradually saw the uh, beauty of staying here and married into local families. So, Joe, you want to tell us a little bit more about the Irish immigrants to Newfoundland? The merchants from Devon and from uh, Bristol would stop off in Waterford, mostly in the southeast coast of Ireland, to collect salt provisions, such as, you know, butter and, and, and salted biscuits and so on. And they were cheaper and superior in quality to the ones that were available in England. So that this was a worthwhile stopover for their ships. Um, and in fact, some of the companies like Jacobs that made these provisions are still around today and still, um, they were usually Quaker families who made salt provisions. And they're, they're, many of them are still in business in modern day Ireland. Nice. So, and when they picked up these provisions in Waterford and also in Yall, they would pick up people as well. Um, people who might have been doing, might have been doing casual labour on farms might have seen a trip to Newfoundland as exciting. It paid better. And in times of low employment 
as uh, labourers, this was um, another option. So you end up with, with quite a lot of people and of shipping course, on. With... Speaking as speaking as three Irish immigrants, Joe, we know the Irish love to just you know jump on a boat and go abroad. That's, yeah, that's yeah, kind yeah of exactly. A, a national yeah, pastime. Yeah, and many of them were from Wexford, where, where you're from, Luke. Yeah, uh, it, it's important to point out that the the Irish were mostly going as, as migrant temporary workers. So this is a migratory fishery. They go over in the summer, they work, they come back. They mostly didn't stay, at least not this early. And this is the 1670s, 1680s. However, that didn't stop the local authorities getting a bit, uh, bit worried about the Irish influence. Because They're not a clean people. English authorities always get suspicious of Irish people. Mm. So the, I have a great quote here from 1681 from the, one of the Commodores in the Avalon Peninsula. He goes, oh, they likewise bring over a great many women passengers whom they sell for servants. Ugh. And a little after their coming, marry among the fishermen, live with the planters, and being extremely poor, contract such debts as they are not able to pay. If course be not speedily taken for the prevention of such passengers coming over, the country will be ruined. Ruined by the Irish. The Irish. Yeah. Specifically the women. They didn't mind the men so much because they just worked. But the idea of women coming and marrying people and staying and having children. Hmm clearly concerned them. And now the country wasn't ruined, as, as we'll see. Uh, but this Commodore was a bit uh, alarmist. But mostly, despite his concerns, the huge majority of the Irish coming were unmarried men. They would come over because it would pay better than being a dairy farmer, farm labourer. Um, and overwintering generally only happened if people were too poor to pay their passage home at the end of the summer because they spent all their money or um, Whatever. This is flashing forward just a little bit, uh, but I was chatting with my grandfather and mentioned to him that I was uh, uh, we were doing Newfoundland for the podcast, and he immediately kind of mentioned the stereotype of Irish people taking the ferry from Waterford to Newfoundland and just kind of using it to sneak into America. Oh, really? That, that was the thing. <laughs> uh, like he was like, ah, yeah, those poor bastards getting on that boat and trying to sneak across the water in the middle of the night. I was like, that. I didn't even ask you a question. Wow. <laughs> you came out of that from nowhere. So that, uh, that that was continuing to be a thing up until... That's the 1930s, 1940s. Yeah. That's when he, he would have been young. So, yeah. <laughs> anyway. that's, a, that's his first, first reaction. So, yeah, the Irish settling in Newfoundland comes much later, uh, a century or two later. I guess we've already found out now how the Irish came to be there and how the British came to be there. But what about the French, Mark? Bonjour, the French in Newfoundland. So uh, as we talked about earlier, they turned up very, very early. They're very keen on getting all this delicious cod. Who uh, wouldn't be? Fishermen, fishermen. And uh, there's also a explorer Jacques Cartier turned up in the 1530s to, you know, like, like they all do. They, he claimed this and claimed that. He did a whole bunch of claiming. Uh, at 1696, the French had already established a settlement at uh, what was then called Plaisance in the French and now is called Placentia, uh, one of many great modern day town names uh, of Newfoundland. So There are a few. I mean, there's also a town called Dildo. We'll, we'll get to the town <laughs> names later. There's some, there's some top will. town names. There's quite a few. Uh, anyway, back to 1696. Uh, we have this guy, Pierre Lemoyne d'Iberville. And oh, for that whatever guy. reason, he's, he's well sick of all of these uh, English people on the eastern coast stealing all the delicious bacalao cod and he decides he's going to go over and give them a good old massacre. In truest uh, 17th century tradition. Yeah, yeah. The, the French and the English love killing each other. Nothing they love more. So he marches from uh, Placentia to Ferryland, which is on the southern coast. So, so the, the southern part of the, the, the Atlantic coast. 
he just marches from town to town, uh, burn it down, massacre it, burn it down. Uh, and the townspeople keep uh, having to retreat. Uh, they, they have no real military to speak of. These are, you know, militias of, of the town. Because it's still run by, on a kind of an ad hoc basis, by whichever admiral or whichever fisherman happens to be running it's the fishery. It's barely fishing. run by anybody. Like, it's just a couple of people living together. That's that's pretty much as much as it gets. It's not a colony. It's just yeah, a... They're, they're like... You know, 50 people, 20 people, this kind of level. Um, and they drive them back further and further and further, even taking uh, St. John's. One thing to, that's cool that I found is this town called Carbonier. Carbonier is on the northern coast and uh, Diberville also tried to take Carbonier. Now, they basically evacuated the town and... Uh, replanted themselves on this island just off the coast which they had prepared with all these fortifications so it was, it was kind of like an island panic room when when shit goes down they all get get on a boat and they run off to their little island lifeboat and they just wait it out uh, and it's apparently very hard to get onto this island if somebody doesn't want you to get onto that island uh, and that was the one place that uh, Deberville was not able to to capture um, apart from that, about 100 uh, English people were dead and another 500 were captured or deported. And they basically cleared the English out of Newfoundland. That's how few English people were there around this time. It was in the hundreds. So it didn't take very much to clear the entire mm-hmm. place of them, apart from the island of Carbonier. In 1705, uh, about 10 years later, again, the French attacked. Here we go and again. Carbonier was again the only part of uh, of Newfoundland that was uh, spared from French invasion. Back in the boats, lads. And and this is, the, you've got to remember, this is in the context of massive conflict between France and England over the future of North America. Like New France, yeah. the French colonies in North America, stretch from New Orleans all the way up through Illinois, all the way up to Quebec and Acadia, which is modern day Maine, and and um Nova Scotia. Like they, they the French were kind of winning at that stage. You forget how big a player they were in, in um in North American politics and they were constantly at war with the english who ran the colonies that would found the u.s and a lot of what would become canada so after these uh i think this was related to the war of the spanish succession mm. and there was the treaty of utrecht which, which sorted all we, that we covered out. back in gibraltar if people are interested in the details but basically you see this a lot with newfoundland there's a bit of a chill bit of a calm bit of a peace and then you know the british attack the french the french attack the british and it it kicks off again in 1762 in the middle of the seven years war between again britain and france the french navy couldn't get out of any of their ports because the the british navy was at the mouth of each port so they managed to sneak a couple of boats out of brest and the idea of this was to try to recapture newfoundland because newfoundland was was a it was a money pit. It was just like the money shooting up out of it in the form of delicious cod. Cod that everyone would pay money for. So they decided that they were going to recapture Newfoundland and use that cod money mm. to help to rid the British from France. They attacked with 750 men and they expected that they would have about a year to uh, fortify their their defenses before the British turned up. They had three months, as it turned out, before double their number, about 1,500 uh, British troops, wow. sailed on uh, Newfoundland. They What they did was they, they went basically, you know, straight to the St. John's area and they went to Signal Hill. This is the famous Battle of Signal Hill. Signal Hill is this uh, this little mountain on the edge of uh, St. John's, the capital, um, and it overlooks the, the whole city. And it's, you know, it's, it's a fantastic view. I, I was there. I was there not too long ago. And uh, what they did was they they sailed right up to the edge of the cliff 
uh, so that the, the French couldn't see them. They kept their sails uh, kind of tucked in so that they couldn't be seen. And they, I think they might have actually sailed in, in the night as well. So a fleet sneaked up on the town. Exactly. And then, <laughs> then what they did was they climbed the cliff. They just sent the guys out of the boat, made them climb up the cliff, and they attacked the, uh, the French at Signal Hill. Is this like Delta Force or something? It's really cool. Especially what they do next. Sounds like Mission Impossible in 1762. Like they, they scale the cliff, they beat the guys in the top, and then what they do is they carry their cannons up the cliff. Oh, come on. They carry the cannons up the cliff, and they stick them on top of Signal Hill, and they point them down at the French. Wow. Uh, bad day for these French guys. So yeah, uh, they, the British absolutely smash the snot out of the French guys and totally take... This is like the last bit of, of French... Uh, claim on Newfoundland. This basically sorts it out forever. That's not to say that the French aren't going to ever attack again. They attack plenty, but this is in terms decisive. Of Newfoundland being French, this is it. Yeah, this is game over. Yeah, that I think was the last battle of the Seven Years' War mm-hmm. in North America. In North America, yeah, and and that that sort of was an important change in the the ebb and flow of people across the Atlantic came after that war. So the the, the cod fisheries were. Com- ebbing and flowing as the price of cod went up and down in various markets. War was both good and bad for cod fishing, depending which side you were on, because you could have trade embargoes. So if you couldn't sell to the Spanish because you were at war with the Spanish, it didn't matter how much cod you caught because you could only sell it in Bristol. Between the end of the Seven Years' War and the start of the American Revolution, the Irish immigration to Newfoundland ramped up to a massive extent. So you end up with like 6,000 young men arriving every spring. About 60% of them are Irish and about 30% are English. And there were some people from Jersey as well. Newfoundland is, unlike most of North America in terms of its European population, fairly restricted. Dr. Hiscock again. People who came to Newfoundland from uh, Europe tended to come from two very small areas. One was an area perhaps 20 miles in a circle or a half circle around the city of Poole in Dorsetshire. And or in the West Country, that, that whole West Country area. And um, the other was a an even smaller ring around the area around Wexford and Cork, so southeast Ireland. And the Irish influences that you see here are largely what Irish people would think of as southeast Irish uh, culture, because it really, you know, we're really kind of Corkmen or Wexfordmen, you know, down here. That has carried on to the present. So St. John's, for instance, is really, uh, in many ways, an Irish city. Uh, it was more so when I was a child, 50 or 60 years ago, uh, but it still is today. If you go to the bars downtown, Irish music is the preferred mode of, of entertainment. And uh, I think many people, particularly in the area around St. John's, see themselves as Irish. This is considered the second largest migration of Irish people ever. What's the biggest? Uh, the biggest is the migration of people from Ulster to the to the Appalachian region, huh. which was huge. Um, and then, of course, you've got the post-potato uh, famine migrations, which were pretty big as well. So in, in the 1760s, Irish women started coming in, in great numbers uh, with their men to Newfoundland, making up a third of the female population, and families start to settle in Newfoundland. And as we all know, the Irish can breed. They can. <laughs> I mean, just look at the three of us. We have no children. <laughs> we're, we're letting the side down. Huh? The British governor in Placentia 
he noted a dramatic increase in cob production in recent years, which he claimed was in part owing to the great quantity of Irish papists and non-jurors who come out here yearly to settle. Murdering agents of the papacy. He was all right with it. And the majority of these guys were, were the, they were the extra sons. You know, if you had a small farm in Waterford or in Wexford or in Kilkenny, your eldest son got the farm. Your second son... Become a priest? That was... Yeah, and then the third son, who can't be a priest or a farmer... Send him to Newfoundland. Go out and make a name for yourself, son. Oh, God. Good luck. Many of these guys spoke Irish, and Irish was actually spoken up until the mid-1800s, early 1900s, fluently in Newfoundland. And they were all Catholic, where the merchants and the men of importance in Newfoundland were, were Protestant Englishmen. So this is all going to work out fine. That's that's always a recipe for uh, harmony. They even founded some towns, like Thomas Nash from Kilkenny, who founded Branch, which is a small town in, in the Avalon Peninsula. And wonderfully, it's the only place outside Europe with a distinct name in the Irish language, you know, a name that isn't just a translation. So it's it's called Talavanaisk in Irish, which is the fishing ground, wow. where in pretty much every other language it's just called... Newfoundland. Inventive. Yeah, in 1784, the government explicitly grants religious freedom to Catholics. Way and uh, you get uh, the Irish really integrating into Newfoundland society. We know that the Napoleonic Wars had a massive impact on European history, but they also really affected Newfoundland. Obviously, the French were distracted by fighting the entire world, and the English fisheries began to expand dramatically. And the Napoleonic Wars crashed the migratory fishery, because most of the unattached young men who might have gone to work in the fishery ended up becoming soldiers during this period. So seasonal migration became emigration, and the people who travelled in the 1790s and the early 1800s were actually moving to Newfoundland permanently from now on. By 1810, 90% of the population was resident, and a new style of trade where people would fish and then sell their fish to traders started to kick in. Oh, so like kind of like a merchant class, uh, you know, commodity guys started to get in th- in, into the middle of it. Exactly. So instead of the British merchants bringing the fishermen over each year, they would just come over and collect yeah. the commodity and sell it. So you, you change the whole relationship. So we mentioned the Mi'kmaq. Uh, they are integrated into all of this. They were uh, allied with the French, fighting against the English, etc. There was another grouping uh, who were around in this time, and they had a very different way of dealing with the Europeans. They were the Beothuk. Now, they were uh, you know, similar in, in terms of their, their economy to the Mi'kmaq. They were uh, hunters and, and gatherers, uh, marine mammal hunters. Um, but their approach to the, to the Europeans was very different. They sought to avoid what they thought was almost a, a kind of a, a conflict. As soon as there was Europeans that would come into their area, they would, they would just move away. Um, and as a result of this, uh, I guess you could call it a policy... Um, they lost out on access to a lot of their traditional hunting grounds very, very quickly. So almost, almost immediately, their 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 culture, which had had been there for hundreds of years, started to come under pressure for for food. There was a whole bunch of problems with this. I mean, they they uh, like many native populations, they had problems with uh, tuberculosis, uh, smallpox that came from the Europeans. 
they had violent encounters with the Europeans and also they were in competition really with, with the Mi'kmaq for, for hunting territory. So they had violent confrontations with them as well. And for all of these different things, they were still trying to, as much as possible, avoid Europeans and were voluntarily giving up on uh, hunting and fishing opportunities that they would otherwise have had. So around 1820, there was a woman by the name of, of Demazdant. Uh, at this point, people were aware that the Beothuk were under pressure and they were kind of making attempts to at least either document this or, or uh, ameliorate, improve this. Um, Demazdant, her husband, was killed in a chase after he stole a fishing boat, uh, which suggests that they were under pressure. They didn't normally seek out uh, uh, stealing possessions of, of Europeans. That was very much against type. And then when they were chased, she dropped to her knees and pulled her top off. Basically, she, she bore her breasts to show that she was a nursing mother. And the people chasing her uh, had pity and brought her back to, I believe, uh, I believe St. John's. Um, and she died of TB before it was possible to, to return her to her community. At this point, though, there was very little of her community left to return her to. Her niece, uh, Shanawadithit, was the last pure-blood Beothuk. She was with her sister and her mother. Her father had uh, died on a, on a hunting excursion and she was brought to, to Newfoundland, St. John's. She was there for six years, refused to be brought back to her, her community and died in 1829 and as the last full-blooded Beothuk. And I just wanted to mention this because it's that not that nuts to actually see an entire people, an entire race, like to be the last, she was the last of her kind and she, she died in St. John's. Um, so yeah, just just to mention that it's not just the French and the British uh, knocking lumps out of each other. There is also the 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 domestic tragedy of this kind of being unfolded in, in the background, and then you have have the Mi'kmaq who are fail, faring uh, obviously a lot better. So as one group's dying out, the 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 Irish immigrants are really increasing in population dramatically, and they change the politics of 1800s Newfoundland because they become organised through the Catholic Church in particular. Who else? Very influential Big surprise. Bishop like James Lewis O'Donnell, who would preach in, in Irish, which made him very popular, and was also once assaulted by the man who would later be King William IV of, of England. Um, assaulted how? With like a, a brick? or Like hit. All right. Uh, they, they had a bit of a scrap when he was a prince. Later, uh, Bishop Fleming in the 1820s and 30s increased the political clout of the Irish Catholic community and made them sort of work together, build schools and try to found a sort of middle class that would take part in politics. People like uh, William Carson, who was Scottish, and Patrick Morris, who was Irish, who fought this reform movement. They thought that Newfoundland deserved to be treated like the other British North American maritime provinces and to be made a colony. It was made a colony in 1824, which meant it now had a governor and consistent rule of law for the first time. Mm. But this wasn't enough for the reform movement. And they wanted to have a representative government. This democracy thing's catching on. I don't like the look of it. It is. And this actually united the um, the merchant class, the, the, the rich conservative merchant class, and the recent um, more liberal Irish immigrants. Uh, they were all united in wanting some kind of democracy. What they got was representative government, which meant the, the executive of the government was still appointed by the crown. But there was a, a little parliament telling them, advising them on how they might behave. But they're pushing for more autonomy. In 1832, as I say, they get this representative government. 
It was called the by London the Bow Wow Parliament because it was just sectarian <laughs> bickering uh, between the that, that, Protestants and the Catholics. That was the higher house, and then there was the lower house, which was the little Bow Wow Parliament. <laughs> <laughs> yippee yo, yippee yay! <laughs> there was no private ballot in these elections. You went you went to an election to a ballot centre and you stood in the spot for who you wanted to vote for, which is obviously really intimidating. Safe if you want to vote for an unpopular guy. Yeah. In 1835, um, there was a, a conservative newspaperman who'd written loads of anti-liberal uh, invective, and he had his ears cut off while voting. <laughs> oh, beautiful. Uh, <laughs> if he managed to finish voting while having his ears cut off, fair play to him. 1836, there was a census commissioned, and it found there were 400 settlements, three quarters of which had about 15 houses. The Irish were half of the 75,000 population concentrated along the shore, and um, St. John's is the biggest settlement. Okay, so at this point, we're moving towards a system called responsible government. Do you want to explain that for us, Joe? That means that the executive of the government is elected by the people. So like a prime minister system in the UK, where the biggest party gets to actually run the government, not just advise it. For most of the time there was responsible government, the Catholic liberals controlled it and the establishment resisted it. In 1861... The governor dismissed a liberal government because they were trying to reduce the wages of judges. And he, the, the, the prime minister said it was a conspiracy. There was a, a violent election with like people getting killed to try and see who, who would win the election. And after this, you got the, a cooling of sectarianism in Newfoundland politics and a kind of an unwritten agreement for the next 50 years that each party would try and not be... Catholic or Protestant would try and represent everyone and it sort of worked out pretty well. Alright, we're going to take a quick break and then move swiftly along to the 20th century, so join us just after this. Okay, Mark, in uh, early 20th century, I believe we get another uh, interesting Italian figure in uh, Newfoundland history. Do you want to tell us something about that? Guglielmo Marconi. Mm. Si. Uh, so I'll talk about him in a, in a second. I'm just going to mention uh, what happened before then. Uh, so the transatlantic telegraph cable was a big piece of wire going from Valencia in Kerry in Ireland, uh, my own home zone, and Newfoundland uh, in uh, in Canada. Well, Newfoundland in Newfoundland at that stage. I think it was 1857, 1858. They laid the first transatlantic cable. So for the first time, the two sides of the Atlantic could talk to each other with, uh, with Morse code and similar things. The first message sent between them was, Europe and America are united by telegraphy. Glory to God in the highest, then on earth, peace and goodwill towards men. That message took 17 hours to send. 17 it was, hours. It was a really sucky system. Uh, telegraphy was uh, discovered by Samuel Morse uh, of Morse Code, and also a chap by the name of uh, Carl Gauss, who you might know if you're into uh, image processing or maths. Mm. Uh, anyway, this was a crummy system. It took 17 hours to send a really lame message. 17 hours to effectively send a tweet. Lame. 
totally like lame. So what would be a more modern alternative? Well, that's Guglielmo Marconi. He was from Bologna in Italy. He married the granddaughter of the founder of Jameson Distilleries. So of course uh, he did. Yeah, bend the wrist, uh, raise the wrist for that guy. Um, he was experimenting in the attic with his butler, not sexually, I mean, <laughs> um, like a, a really sexy Tony Stark. Um, but yeah, he, he was he was exper- experimenting with uh, radio waves, with uh, transmission and reception of radio waves. That'll never catch on. And eventually he got like a, a, an introduction via some family friends to some people in the UK, started doing some experiments for them. Everybody started to realize this guy, he's, he's, he's onto something here. And everybody wants him to come and do some radio uh, wave broadcasting in their spot. He, he, does, he does coverage of the America's Cup sailing race, actually, from one of the boats. One of the boats gloriously called the SS Ponce. Uh, that was in the late 1890s. In 1901, he has already set up um, centres in Clifton and Mayo, also I think in, in one in Wexford, and in Poldew in Cornwall in the UK. And he also sets up a centre in Signal Hill, from the Battle of Signal Hill we mentioned earlier, which overlooks St. John's. Now appropriately named. Yeah. I was recently up Signal Hill, and there's a big, big fancy plaque there, And here is a recording of me reading it out. At Signal Hill on the 12th of December 1901, Guglielmo Marconi and his assistant George Kemp confirmed the reception of the first transatlantic radio signals with a telephone receiver and a wire antenna kept aloft by a kite. They heard Morse code for the letters S transmitted from Poldew Cornwall. Their experiments showed that radio signals extended far beyond the horizon, giving radio a new global dimension for communication in the 20th century. Also, just one other cool thing about Marconi. Uh, I found out that a lot of his fame came from the sinking of the Titanic. Everyone became very aware of these these radio signals because the Titanic put out an SOS. Uh, And in the, the trial and the investigation that happened afterwards... Everyone said, look, if Marconi hadn't done this great thing and created this great invention, everybody would have died. Anybody who survived on the Titanic, that's basically down to Marconi. He almost rode on the Titanic. Uh, he had been offered free uh, free transport on the, on the Titanic, but he went a couple of days earlier instead on the Lusitania to cross the Atlantic. The Ooh. Lusitania, which itself was another famous shipwreck only okay. three years after the Titanic. Cool detail about Marconi. Okay, so we're in the 20th century... Uh, uh, Newfoundland is a, a, a dominion still independent from Canada it's, it's rejected an opportunity to join already because they don't like it they don't like it much now either to be honest but they're still very loyal <laughs> British subjects yeah they're loyal to Britain this played out in World War One. I. I think you mentioned earlier Mark before the podcast that uh, there's a lot of pride still in Newfoundland about this famous uh, Newfoundland regiment which fought in uh, the Battle of the Somme Mm. with a massive amount of casualties. I think it's up to 50% of uh, the soldiers that were sent to the Battle of the Somme never made it back. They sent about 2,000 men to World War mm. One, and they got back about 1,000. Uh, there was, you know, some of those were casualties, injuries, etc. But yeah, the, the attrition was very, very high. The first Newfoundland regiment, and obviously wasn't a Canadian regiment because Newfoundland was not a, a part of Canada at the time, mm-hmm. just a, a British dominion. As was Canada. They were all dominions. Yeah. So it was the same status as, as New Zealand, as Australia, as, as Canada, but tiny. But this Newfoundland uh, regiment, they were not conscripted, which is a, an important uh, fact to note in this piece of Newfoundland history, uh, which again is another reason why they take pride in this regiment, because the regiment was voluntarily formed, uh, went over to 
France seemingly fought very, very bravely again uh, at the Somme, where the German army were just basically grinding up soldiers. Yeah. Uh, and there's some first-hand accounts online, Lieutenant Owen Steele and others, and it just sounds brutal. Yeah. It's um, you know, real carnage. I've just recently listened to or re-listened to uh, Dan Carlin's uh, retrospective on World War I, uh, which I'd highly recommend any any podcast listener to check out. Um, they're very comprehensive, but really, really good. He does touch on this, obviously, on the Battle of the Somme, and I think he does mention the Newfoundland Regiment in that episode but yet the conditions were just horrific so the majority of the regiment didn't make it back to newfoundland the cost both in terms of lives of young men and also financial cost uh would go on to sort of have a, a very grave impact on the newfoundland uh, economy in the years following world war one yeah and it wasn't just that but definitely paying pensions and, and widows pensions and uh, invalid pensions to veterans and trying to uh, maintain an unsustainable cross-island railway. Yeah. The government got into massive debt. I have a quote here, sorry, Joe, from um, you. You actually put out a shout on Reddit, on the Newfoundland subreddit. They were wonderful. Yeah, they're great people, very, very helpful. I just have one particularly apt quote from one of the users here, uh, bungalow underscore D-Y-L, said, uh, World War I and the Great Depression are too important to ignore. We aren't just a late joining province to Canada. We are a failed state. Our identity is still shaped by these years and the human and financial toll inflicted on us during World War I brought about the loss of our independence. Uh, we fell back under British rule and spent years paying back our debt, debt that we had accumulated from putting together a regiment to fight for the British in the first place. But, but yeah, basically we get to a point where the government can't run itself. This responsible government they fought so hard for has to go cap in hand to London looking for... A solution. The Prime Minister Richard Squires, he was um he created a controversy by by the, the Attorney General issuing a warrant for his arrest for accepting bribes, uh, he, and then gets re-elected soon after. Of course, the the Great Depression at the time as well obviously had a had a big impact. He did, yeah, this is in the middle of the Great Depression, which isn't helping a debt-ridden country. Uh, and yeah, he he eventually has to escape from government buildings during a riot, uh, narrowly escaping injury. And this is the point when it's agreed with London that they will hand over government to a commission sent by London. And the House of, Re- of Assembly votes itself out of existence and ends essentially uh, Newfoundland independence. Yeah, so in 1934, London uh, officials in London appoint a three-member royal commission uh, in return for aid to Newfoundland. Uh, they appoint this three-member commission, one person from Britain, one person from Canada, and one person from Newfoundland uh, to manage the island as a committee. But this is only ever going to be a temporary solution. It's a temporary solution uh, until the, the island gets back on its feet. The idea is to with a better yeah. solution eventually. Yeah. And then in uh, World War Two, then, the American forces are looking at Newfoundland saying, that's an awfully good place to have an air base. Uh, mm-hmm. When, yeah, when you're trying to fly across the Atlantic, you know, Newfoundland... they end up building the biggest airport in the world at Gander. They do, yeah. The, so because planes at the time could not fly, let's say from the from New York, for example, uh, all the way to Dublin uh, without refueling, Newfoundland was you know the closest point to which they could you know fly between two points from Europe to North America. So planes would fly via uh, Gander to get to Europe, and because it's a British territory, British controlled, uh, the Americans have to negotiate with Britain. 
And uh, there's a trade-off between Churchill and Roosevelt. Roosevelt gives Britain 50 destroyers to help in the Atlantic campaign in exchange for 99-year leases on naval and air force bases in Newfoundland. Canadians also build a couple of bases, military bases in Newfoundland. It becomes a very strategic point uh, in the Battle of the Atlantic. And at this time, then Newfoundland actually becomes the most heavily militarized area in the Americas. I, uh, and I get the impression this period is, is remembered pretty fondly by Newfoundlanders. Like it is. We have, we've got 20,000 people working in construction. So that, that's, that's yes. good. And in the middle, of, just after the Depression lifts... So coming out of this this depression and this kind of uh, economic recession, suddenly there's a surge of people and industry into mm. Newfoundland, which is you know is great for the local economy. And uh, loads of Newfoundland women ended up marrying soldiers. They did. So over thirty thousand Canadians and British soldiers at its peak, uh, at the peak of the war, were stationed in Newfoundland. Uh, and yeah, as you mentioned, Joe, there's there was twenty five thousand soldiers army joined the wars. That's that's an impressive amount of um... uh, coupling. Yeah, yeah. All the girls around the bay they came to hear the music play. We played to them all and sailed away the North Atlantic Squadron. Now all the boys are gone to war and all the girls are on the shore and they wave goodbye forevermore. Uh, just uh, two things for me to mention here. Uh, one was, so I went to the most easterly tip of, of North America, but also Newfoundland, and it's called Cape Spear. Uh, and during World War II, they had, and I, I had to look this up, hidden guns. Uh, guns that were essentially in a little... Um, a little nest but that if you looked at them from from the sea you could not see a single gun it just looked like flat land but because of how they formatted it these huge cannons were used to shoot out at u-boats that were chasing in uh british and american uh troop ships and military ships coming into saint john's port also to say they organized welcoming committees for the boats that were coming in to refuel and refit so they were trying to make a huge impact not just on you know on the war but also on the people who were kind of doomed to fight the war the the men who were on uh, on the ships and the the soldiers who are and and, and and naval men who were on those boats they tried to make sure that newfoundland was seen for them as like a, a safe haven as a second home because they were constantly going back and forth trying to protect uh, uh cargo uh from u-boats german u-boats that were were hunting so a morale boost every time you came ashore and they felt a kind of a duty to be welcoming and to give of their time and give of their kindness and give it their humor to to the sailors coming in. So that was uh, that was something I saw when I was out there. That's something that we'll definitely touch on later. But yeah, we mentioned in our episode on Alaska that the only part of the American mainland that was taken over by uh, the Japanese or by any Axis troops was was in Alaska. But there was definitely a lot of activity in and around Newfoundland as well. In October 1942, a passenger ferry, the SS Caribou, was uh, sunk just off the coast of Newfoundland. And went down within 10 minutes okay. uh, with wow. hundreds of people on board. This is at the time where ships were being escorted, you know, around the Atlantic Ocean by uh, naval vessels in order to protect them from the threat of U-boats. And so there was a minesweeper that was escorting the ferry at the time. But naval policy dictated that the military vessel had to hunt down the U-boat. So as these hundreds, 238 passengers, I think, were kind of dumped into the freezing water... And the minesweeper had to go off and chase the U-boat for a couple wow. of hours uh, while a lot of these people presumably died in the water because that was 
as I said, that was what naval policy dictated at the time. Mm. So yeah, of the 238, uh, 137 died. And I would I guess that quite a few of those were to, due to hypothermia. I, I was there in the near middle of summer, really. And even then, kind of only about 10, 15 degrees. Uh, and that water, it does not get warm. No. That is cold, cold. Yeah, it's the Labrador current. It's yeah, freezing. Yeah, it's really, it's yeah. tough. Then in February 1942, uh, there was three ships that left from Maine to go to the naval base in Argentia, Newfoundland. And they were hit by a gale uh, just off the coast of Newfoundland. And all of them, again, because of naval policy, were ordered to zigzag to avoid uh, U-boats and just, just threw them completely off course. All three of them ran aground uh, at, in different parts of Newfoundland and sort of just started going down slowly. And there's this one guy, a soldier called Edward Burgeon, who makes it off one of the ships and managed to swim to shore. Wow. And this is, again, in the middle of February in a gale in Newfoundland in the North Atlantic, scales the cliffs and walks through the blizzard to a nearby mining settlement where he manages to summon help from the villagers. It's, it's quite an interesting incident, actually. It's presumed that the majority of... Uh, the men, if not all of the men from those ships would have died had it not been for this guy. So a bunch of villagers managed to come down and help uh, the soldiers off the shore, off the cliffs. Although 203 people died in this tragedy, there was like uh, a significant number of them were were kind of nursed back to health by the villagers. Again, like you mentioned, Mark, they're, they're extremely generous and kind of giving people. And right. Yeah, and then just one more thing from the Second World War. In 1941, uh, Newfoundland was host to a top-secret meet- meeting between Churchill and Roosevelt, oh, which yeah. became the basis for the Atlantic Treaty, oh, right. yeah. uh, which was, yeah. So important. Very historic moment. Yeah, that's kind of the Second World War. There's, um, there's a number of different incidents, but th- those are two that I just wanted to touch on. And then, of course... Uh, during the Cold War, the proximity of Newfoundland to Russia became very important to the U.S. Army, of course, uh, for naval bases and air bases and, you know, kind of reconnaissance flights and that sort of thing. So that that kind of kept the military economy going for a while. But it has since uh, become, you know, less of a military stronghold, I suppose, Newfoundland nowadays. But in the years immediately afterwards, some people were really taken by their American friends. And there, there was a movement... To solve the, um, the 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 government crisis by co- coming into some kind of economic union with the USA, yep. people thought that they could maybe trade with the USA. But this was denounced as being anti-British and Republican by the well, mainstream. Seeming that the Americans, like, okay, so th- there is this accepted uh, view of how this whole uh, this transition from Dominion to giving up their own their own uh, electoral process to this commission of the British and then eventually joining Canada in 1949. There is different views about how all this happened. I mean, from from some Newfoundlanders, there's particularly there's a book called uh, Don't Tell the Newfoundlanders by uh, Greg Malone from 2012. And it, it presents an account where uh, the Newfoundlanders were kind of taken over a little, maybe, arguably, against their will. Um, that the, the British used the huge debt that they had as a stick to beat them with to... to take Newfoundland to use this commission and so on to to dictatorially decide what they what they did they they were offered almost to the US the US didn't seem so interested and were happy for Canada to have it they didn't really see 
a huge advantage in, in having Newfoundland. They already had Alaska and there was already, you know, hmm. some views that Alaska was kind of hard to maintain as a far off, uh, partially Arctic state. And, and Ottawa was very keen to to get it as a province to avoid being completely surrounded exactly. by the United they, they States. They definitely didn't want America on both sides in that way. So it, it made yeah. the most sense for it to go to Canada. Um, and in terms of the British worldview as well, they wanted to... You know, they were trying to decolonize the world, essentially, and create allied yep. states. Um, they didn't need a little one that was, as as our, our friend on Reddit described it, a failed yep. state. So, you know, I think they were willing to help out Canada with the massive costs involved in taking in Newfoundland. But as you say, the people of Newfoundland were given a choice in two referenda run in 1949. Yep. But Yeah, the first referendum had uh, 70,000 people actually vote mm. for independence which is quite interesting. Uh, and 64,000 people voted for Confederation with Canada, so just behind independence. And then 22,000 people voted to remain with the commission, so mm-hmm. remain with Britain. Mm-hmm. And without a clear majority, so you get another referendum. And this is where it's just you, know, two you have a lot of... Canada or, or Yeah, you've got two options and there's a lot of, there's a lot of information out there about yeah. like pressure tactics and like very aggressive campaigns on both sides. Uh, and eventually over 52% uh, voted to join Canada. So not the majority, but the, what would you say? Largest the, minority. Yeah. The biggest minority. The largest minority, yeah, uh, moved to join Canada rather than vote for independence, mm-hmm. uh, which is a still a contentious decision. And it's today. interesting if you look at the breakdown of that vote, it's the same people who opposed joining Canada in the 1860s who opposed it all the way through. And it's the southeast, the Avalon Peninsula, largely Irish Catholic mm. heritage, um, liberal voters oppose Union with Canada, where the the interior predominantly was in favour of it. Uh, I listened to a lot of talk radio while I was there, and there's still a hell of a lot of people who don't like Ottawa all that much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, a lot of the people who consider themselves Newfoundlanders first and Canadians second or not yeah. at all. <laughs> Yeah, there's still definitely a very strong sense of pride and independence in Newfoundland. Um, but they feel like they're forgotten that, that by was... the mainland too, because they are this little, yeah. this little island on the edge of everything. I'm just going to touch really quickly on the resettlement program that the Canadian government, oh, yeah. which again, probably does not endear the Canadian government to Newfoundlanders. Uh, that begins in 1954. So they kind of look at the island and they say, oh, this is... this." Uh, you know, how are we going to manage this place? With It's so spread out and so sparsely populated. Little settlements of two families in a cove. Yeah. Tiny, tiny settlements. Fishing out of an open-top boat. Yeah. Uh, the Canadian government comes along and says, we want everybody to move to designated, uh, quote-unquote, growth centres mm. uh, to make the, the population easier to manage. And they say, unless the entire village or whatever you want to call it, settlement is willing to move, then nobody is, is moving. Like they offer them economic in- incentive to move, but only right. if everybody will go from a, t- a particular settlement. So that led to and tension. Yeah, that caused a lot of rifts between people. A lot of people want to go and a lot of people don't want to go. You have communities that are divided on the issue and some people, you know, want to take the economic grants that have been handed out by the Canadian government and some want to retain their roots where they are. Between 1954 and 1975, almost 30,000 people are resettled into different locations and hundreds of uh, the smaller communities are lost. I'm just going to do a list here of some of the some of the favorite names of some of these communities that were lost at the time. Uh, Otters Hill, Paradise, Pope's Harbor, Grandy's Passage, 
Flat Island, Furby's Cove, Goblin, <laughs> Ivanhoe, Mosquito, Push Through, and Western Great Head. Names. There were just a, a few of the of the hundreds of uh, little, you know, as you said, Joe, kind of very small settlements uh, that were lost in this resettlement. And pro- can I just process. say here that that up to this point. A lot of these isolated settlements that really kept the identity of where their people came from. So if they come from Devon, they were still from Devon. And obviously I had the most interest in the people who come from Ireland. And there was a, a Ryark documentary by the Irish National Broadcaster called The Forgotten Irish in, I think, the 1980s. And they interviewed some of these people. And they sound like they're from Waterford or Wexford or Kilkenny. Oh, yeah. Um, with they a do. slight Canadian Irish, twang, yeah. but like they sound like a recent immigrant rather than someone who's been there three generations. Uh, the accent there is is something that is uh, we should probably we need to I guess maybe try to put some recording or something in of it because it's well it's I'm gonna put in a clip here from that documentary of a young Sweet. woman in the 80s commenting on how the connections with Ireland are being are going to be forgotten as people move to this more modern urban. Mary, what did you ever hear about Ireland? Well, actually, that's all you ever heard about was Ireland. You know, right from the time I was small. It was, Ireland was just like home, you know? Yeah. To the old people, it was. The old country. Yeah. Did, they, did they know which part of Ireland they came from? Oh, yeah. They always knew. What, what places did they um, mention? Passage West in Waterford. Yes. You know, some of them from Cork, the powers and the Nashes and the Englishes. Did they um, ever talk about... Um, Beliefs and, and, and cures. Did you ever pick, you ever pick well, those up? It wasn't up? even so much to talk about it when I was, well, I'm not that old, but uh, you know, when I grew up, they were part of how you cured the eyes or toothaches or anything. And all the songs, and oh, especially the songs. Yes. You know, and the recitations. So, yeah, we mentioned earlier how cod is kind of a key cornerstone of the economy of Newfoundland, but uh, that all changed in the was it 1992, Joe? Yeah, overfishing and industrialization of fishing meant that they were catching so many cod that the stock just couldn't recover. And they were also, I think, casting nets deeper, which meant they were getting younger cod. And it was just a disaster, a kind of an ecological disaster. I think they figured out that the, the, the cod stocks were down to something like 10% of, of what they had been. Uh, way less, actually. Yep. 1%. <laughs> there was a, there was a, a massive, massive spike in, in the 60s. Yes, yeah, so the Canadian government made some efforts through the 70s and 80s to decrease the prevalence of uh, international big trawlers within their sphere of influence around the coast. But it really didn't have the desired effect and they pushed out the boundaries of where international trawlers could fish. But by the early 90s, it became clear that the cod stocks had reached dangerous near extinction levels along the Grand Banks. And so a drastic decision was taken in Ottawa in July 1992 to indefinitely ban cod fishing off the coast of Newfoundland and off the Atlantic coast of Canada generally. This is the biggest industrial closure in Canadian history and it resulted in more than 35,000 fishermen and plant workers from about 400 small coastal communities uh, becoming unemployed again indefinitely. Uh, I spoke with John Maher, who's the chair of the Centre for Newfoundland and Labrador Studies in Waterford Institute of Technology about this a while ago, and he used the phrase uh, a nuclear event to describe the impact this closure, this moratorium, the cod moratorium, had on the Newfoundland economy. Overnight, something that had been a cornerstone of the economy for 500 years was taken out of the economic ecosystem, if you will. The result was um, 
as I said, huge unemployment. The federal government did have to intervene with various different schemes to deal with some of the social and economic impacts um, and to deal with retraining people to take up different tasks, investing in more education. But it also meant that Newfoundland became essentially an emigrant society. So being founded by immigrant fishermen, now these people who could no longer be fishermen, them and, and more pertinently their children started going to mainland Canada after concluding education. So there's been a huge change in the flow of people in Newfoundland as a result of the Cod Moratorium. The long-term effects have been an increased diversification of the Newfoundland economy. Now there's a, a big shellfish industry because the cod, as bottom feeders, used to actually eat a lot of the, the, the snow crab and the shrimp. And now those are a significant part of the economy. But the shellfish industry, although it's probably worth as much or more now than the cod industry ever was, uh, there's a lot less people involved in it. And in order to get involved, you need to make bigger capital investments because the, the boats used are, are significantly bigger than the, the small fishing boats people used to use for cod fishing on a kind of individual basis. Although the cod stocks are recovering slowly, it doesn't look like cod fishing will return to being a mainstay of the Newfoundland economy anytime soon. And the uh, Canadian government are being very careful not to be overly optimistic and not to risk this resource again, but let it recover for the future. So related to the cod fisheries and a little bit the cod moratorium is the tradition in Newfoundland of sealing uh, and also eating eating seal meat. In in the previous, I mean, decades, hundreds of years, the seal fisheries or the seal hunt was a, a huge source of income, uh, seasonal, mainly in uh, spring, March, etc. Uh, but it was it was a, a huge economic driver along St. John's and a lot of the a lot of the coastal areas. In modern day, it is uh, uh, receded hugely. Uh, currently, their seal products are banned in, in the US uh, to a large extent in, in Europe, Russia, and, and many areas as well. Um, so actually, the seal population, uh, even though I don't think it was necessarily ever near in endangerment, it has actually uh, peaked hugely. So now that there's, now there's, there's very little hunting and a lot of seals, which in some ways might also be affecting the speed at which the cod are repopulating. Uh, because because they because eat seals the cod. eat cod, and it's a little yeah. bit. I mean, it's maybe an oversimplification to say more seals, seals equal less cod because it's a complex e ecosystem. And there's capelin, also a very small fish that are, are the, kind of the mainstay for everything uh, in the in the sea around Newfoundland. Everything eats capelin. Pretty Great much. life for the capelin. It's it's a big part of uh, of Newfoundland uh, culture and, and and traditions. Um, it might be relevant here in terms of talking about Newfoundland traditions. Uh, Dr. Uh, Hiscock is actually an expert in Newfoundland uh, folklore. Uh, we spoke on the phone uh, a couple of days ago, so I might just uh, give you a little a little taste of what we were talking about. In your original email, you, you asked if there was a legend that I was particularly interested in. And, and, and uh, perhaps I could just mention the legend of Princess Sheila. Uh, this is a legend that has been around for, as a legend, for uh, about 100 years that we, we know about. It, it purports to be the story of the origin of the, the family uh, that settled, one of the families that settled in the area of Newfoundland just west of St. John's in Conception Bay, on the west side of Conception Bay, the, uh, the Pike family. And uh, the, the idea of the story is that the Pike family was founded by uh, a man who was a former pirate, but actually an aristocrat from the west of England, and a woman who was captured by uh, Dutch pirates and saved by the pirate, uh, who was actually a princess of 
of Ireland, of one of the uh, the kingdoms of Ireland. So her name, according to the legend, was Sheila, Sheila Nagera. And um, in, uh, in the story, she married Gilbert Pike. So the Pike family make um, uh, a legend out of this. They make a kind of a, an explanation of their family history through this legend, which is told over and over again. The, the legend gets reused all the time for lots of different purposes. So the, the famous journalist, organi uh, union organizer, and politician, and author, Joe Smallwood, uh, he was at one time the premier of Newfoundland, the, the first premier after Newfoundland and Canada joined together together as one country. He he loved it because it was a kind of a foundation legend for all of of Newfoundland. It was the, the Irish and the English fell in love and had babies, and now they're they're neither, but they're both. <laughs> and it's uh, it's gone on, and and so the the name shows up in uh, in more recent work as a uh, a kind of a uh, what a, a token of women's liberation, because in the legend and in the the fictionalized versions of the legend that get turned up that turn up in novels and the like, uh, Sheila is a very very strong and able and independent woman. And in fact, when her husband gets taken again by pirates, she essentially organizes her community and turns it into a a nice modern forward looking place for the the early seventeenth century. So it's a legend that has served many, many purposes, and I won't go into all of them. Uh, and it's still around. It's still being used for commercial purposes and for tourist purposes and historic purposes and, and you know, teaching young children uh, better kind of uh, gender roles. Yeah, so one, uh, one other thing I wanted to mention was uh, Operation Yellow Ribbon, which was uh, happened during September 11th, uh, 2001, mm. obviously right after the... 9-11 attacks. Um, Newfoundland played an unexpected role in that whole story. Yeah. So a thousand miles north uh, of New York, you've got uh, all non-military planes are ordered to land. Uh, U.S. spaces, airspace is effectively evacuated. And there's a great documentary on this, uh, an NBC documentary, which I'm just going to play a very, very brief clip here from to just set the stage as to what was happening at the time over the Atlantic when these attacks happened. Canada 1174, Senator Gaudet, we're to maintain 6,000 people. On September 11th, when U.S. airspace is shut down, there are almost 400 planes carrying tens of thousands of passengers westbound over the Atlantic. Around 200 are close enough to return to Europe. 167 more are too far across the ocean to turn back. So you've got three planes a minute entering Canadian airspace at one point. And the air traffic control people at Gander, the airport that we mentioned earlier, built during World War Two, were basically in charge of telling them all where to go. Yeah. And this was the busiest day Gander had had probably since the war. Uh, you know, they were expecting eight flights that day and they got 40 or so. 38, I believe. 7,000 passengers uh, in a town with a population yeah. of 10,000. Wow. So they just line them up on the tarmac one after the other, land all these jumbo jets. So yeah, it, it's it's if you imagine if you imagine living in a city of a million people, for example, just extrapolate that out and just imagine five hundred thousand people turning up on your doorstep saying, "We're here," you know, when your infrastructure What's is not dinner? 
not built to not built to cope with that it at all. It sounds like the opposite so, of yeah, the last is... chopper at a Saigon. It's just like endless, <laughs> endless aircraft just swarming in from every bloody direction. Yep, and the, most yep. people weren't told that the, why they were landing there oh until they landed in case there was more terrorists on the planes. Oh boy. Yeah, there's a great uh, segment in that documentary which is available on YouTube uh, of yeah passengers being told on the planes like what like uh, plenty of pilots actually lied to the oh the we've got a signal light out yeah or oh there's you know minor turbulence or something and we're being forced to land in mm. Canada and then only telling them sort of a couple hours three or four hours after the attacks but had happened I think we, we shouldn't dwell on it too much that, that documentary is well worth watching it's about an hour long and deals with some of the individual stories of people and the kindness of the community of Gander which was really remembered you know even all these years later, they re- really remembered um, the hospitality shown by these people. So like you were saying about the welcome parties during World War II, there was just a, an unquestioning opening of this community and their community halls and their churches and their houses and their shops to these stranded people. Yeah, and they just gave away food, gave away clothes, yeah. just like, uh, yeah. So, uh, be- There's a story in that documentary of a, of a married couple who met that day a guy from England and a woman from mm. Texas. Like it's a, it's a very very nice story to come out of, of a horrible, obviously horrible a terrible uh, tragedy. And it really, yes. I think that would be emblematic. And Mark, correct me if I'm wrong, but like emblematic of the the, the general culture of Newfoundland and its in terms of its hospitality and openness. Oh no, um, they're they're lovely people, really easy going, really chill out. It it was very like being home. It was weird. Everything mm. looked quite like Ireland uh, and and Western Ireland, uh, the coast of uh, the Atlantic coast particularly. Um, their accents were very familiar. I mean, I don't have the strongest Irish accent in the world. Uh, it's a little bit Canadian because of my my fiance. So yeah, they're very similar accents to my own, really. Uh, and yeah, it's it's very nice. It's like a mixture of uh, cork and dingle. If you put those together, that's basically what St. John's is like. And uh, yeah, it's it's really really strangely familiar because you're yep. you're, you're thousands it's, of miles it's, from home. It's now on my list yeah. of places to actually go to. Now that we know so much about it. Um, just to mention also, uh, I mean, the, the cod fisheries have collapsed, obviously. They're now moving in a big way towards tourism, as much as I went there mm-hmm. and, and, and Joe's considering going there. Uh, they're doubling the size of the airport. They've invested in all these different tourism centers. Uh, they have um, Newfoundland and Labrador is the modern name for the, the province, which includes a big section on the mainland, but it's very sparsely populated. Uh, but it also has uh, deposits of iron ore. There's offshore oil, things like this. So they have natural resources, but economically, the tradition in Newfoundland has always been uh, cod. And as a result of the cod moratorium, the economy is quite depressed there. And I was just reading a, an article, is apparently likely to be so for some time as well. Mm-hmm. Um, just before, we're, we're kind of coming close to the end of the podcast. I just wanted to very quickly ask you favorite town names in Newfoundland. Joe? For me, it's got to be Heart's Desire, Heart's Delight, and Heart's something else. There's three little towns, beautiful names. Uh, Luke? I got to go with that former settlement of uh, Goblin. Goblin? So, yes. <laughs> okay, so I, ha- I have a list uh, of, of some of my, my favorites. My, my favorite is, is Dildo. It, you're, you're not going to do better than Dildo. And for me, Dildo is the top one. But just very quickly, Ming's Bite, Indian Burying Place, <laughs> Deadman's Bay, Little Heart's Ease, Goobies, Random Island, Spaniards Bay, Turks Cove, Burnt Point, Old Shop, Placentia, obviously, Tickles Island, Chance <laughs> Cove, and I went to this town, Whitless Bay. It's very, very nice. 
All right. Uh, yeah, I think we're just about to wrap it up. Uh, just to touch very, very briefly on sports. Uh, interesting to note that although it's quite popular in the rest of Canada, I believe, American football, um, it's actually not, is barely played at all in Newfoundland. Uh, ice hockey is very popular, mm. but um, more popular are, you know, more popular than American football is, uh, you know, association football or soccer and rugby, uh, probably thanks to the British influence. Makes sense. And that's our episode for this week uh, on Newfoundland. It's been a very, very long podcast. See, our, our problem here was that the people of Newfoundland were too yeah. forthcoming. Yes. You know, when we ask people for input... Normally you send out a we tweet it. and it's crickets. We got so much. Silence and these factors kept giving us more info. Yeah. Um, and it, it's, it's gorgeous, but... Um, <laughs> and then we filled up a lot of time detailed. talking about it. I, I hope you all enjoyed. If you'd like to learn more about Newfoundland, you can dig through our show notes, which should be available in your podcast app, or you can visit our website, 80daypodcast.com. Thanks again in this episode to Dr. Hiscock for his contributions. Uh, we also want to thank our sponsor for this season, HarryBaby.com. Don't forget you can get 10% off anything you order there at HarryBaby.com with the promo code 80days. That's eight zero days. And we also want to say a very big thank you to our Kickstarter backers from earlier this year, specifically in this episode, Jen Jones and Jeffrey Docker. Thank you guys so much for your contributions. We really appreciate it. If you pledged enough to uh, get a t-shirt from our Kickstarter campaign, you can check your inbox. Uh, you should have details there pretty soon, if not already, about how to claim your t-shirts. And finally, we just want to ask you guys once again, if you want to support the show, if you like the content that we produce, we would really appreciate either a rating or a review or both on iTunes. Uh, five stars are always welcome. It is the best way to support the show. It only takes a couple of minutes and it makes us feel great. Woohoo! Mark, where can people find you on the internet? I am on at MarkBoy86 on Twitter and I have a blog called The Toner of Leak. Joe? You can find me on timetoburn.com where burn is B-Y-R-N-E and also at unburnock. You can find me at lukejkelly.com or at the Luke J. Kelly. You can also contact us anytime you like to ask anything about the podcast or suggest a new location or give us feedback or whatever you like at 80dayspodcast at gmail.com. That's it from us for this week. Uh, thank you guys for listening and we'll see you guys next time. We're flying through it, I think. We're floundering through. Are you caught me? Um, next towards the French, Joe, where do you have place. more stuff between? Have you had enough of my puns? <laughs> I'm going to krill you. <laughs> um, uh, uh, is there more? Is there more English? Uh, Colonial, uh, uh, I'll just halibut in for a second and. Uh,